So now I not only wish that I could uh, take pictures like Ben, I also wish I could preach like him. Um, uh, these are fun Sundays, um, and I think they're blessed in some way. I, I just want to say, kind of context-wise, um, we celebrate a lot of things in life. Uh, as, as a nation or as a whole society, we celebrate things in America. We all kind of know what those are, Thanksgiving. Christmas, stuff like that, 4th of July. As a church community, there's things that we celebrate. We celebrate uh, Easter and Christmas again. Uh, and, and there's we all kind of do it. It doesn't matter where you go, we all do it. But if you keep coming down to a further level, like your family celebrates the birthdays in your family, uh, and unless, unless I benefit from it, I'm not going to celebrate your birthday with you. Uh, but I'm going to celebrate the birthdays in my family. And one of our favorite traditions in, in our family is I've got four daughters, um, so I, uh, sorry about this. Please turn off your cell phones. Um, the, uh, the thing I like in our family is we, we made this thing up, and it's kind of fun. It's, we celebrate half birthdays. My kids don't really know yet that no one else does that, so they'll be all excited uh, and run up to people because I take on the birthdays and half birthdays I take the daughters out on a date and I buy them pretty stuff and take them to a fancy dinner and stuff like that and so we'll be out walking hand in hand in the old mill and stuff like that and we'll run into someone we know and and they'll say hi and whatever and you know like this last time it was Esther and she's like you know we're on on my half birthday celebration and people just kind of look at her confused and she doesn't know that they don't understand what the heck she's talking about but uh, they go to school and, and think that everyone, you know, it's this exciting thing and nobody really cares about their half birthday. Um, but they'll, they'll figure it out. But it's a cool thing for our family to celebrate and to look forward to. It's just what we do. And it serves a, a really cool purpose because I want those memories with my daughters, taking them out, just me and them, and I want them more than just once a year. And I want them to feel like they're valuable and they're special. So it really serves a purpose in my family. And I think that... Antioch has some things like that too. There's the things that we do Easter and Christmas and all that that kind of a lot of people do nationwide. But there's a few traditions that we have that are unique to this congregation. And one of those traditions is Art Sunday. And it's something we started doing right at the beginning of Antioch because art was kind of an important thing to us. We had kind of recognized, like Ben was saying, that, that there are not, you know, we, we don't think that certain things are valuable or that we're valuable sometimes. And as a church in America, we're going to get this in, uh, to this in a minute, there are certain types of gifts that pastors and churches have marginalized and don't really bring in and, and see as part of the believing community. And one of those is the arts. And it really bothered us. And it's just like, man, the greatest message in the world deserves the greatest marketing in the world. Communication and expression is through the arts. And and if we're going to communicate about Jesus Christ, why would we not use all the different ways that we can do it? When David wanted to communicate about God, he used poetry and songs. Uh, why would we just lop off the arts? So we really just said, you know what, we want to value it, so let's create a tradition and let's celebrate it. And so that's really where Arts Sun, uh, Art Sunday came from. And so what we do, just so you know, is there's artwork all out through the commons from artists within this church, some that make their living that way, Others that do it on the side, God blessed them with those gifts, um, and this is a chance for them to showcase that. It's a chance for you to put 
art from within your family in your house instead of Thomas Kincaid. I don't have anything against Thomas Kincaid. I just don't like his art. Um, but you can, you can get artwork from people within this church. And here's the cool thing, um, because art is never just this thing in and of itself. Nothing is ever the thing in and of itself. We sell this art as a fundraiser for missions, and these things all connect together. Does that make sense? So it's really cool, these art Sundays that we do. And so I want to talk a little bit about art today and next Sunday. We're going to get back to the Gospel of John. Uh, which has been uh, an amazing study for me, and I'm really loving it. But it's kind of fun because last week hybrids into this week. Last week with the water and the wine, we began to talk a little bit about fundamentalism in America and some of the things that have happened through that. And so we're going to kind of just pull that thread through to this week and kind of move forward. What I want to do is just kind of sketch it out for you uh, what, what's happened because of fundamentalism and how that's affected the way in the church and in Christianity we see art, okay? And you're like, well, how, I mean, how's, how do those two things go together? What do they have to do with each other? Um, it's real simple, so let's go back and trace it out. I know we've traced fundamentalism before, but we'll do it again just quickly. Fundamentalism is uh, a movement that began late 1800s, really took up, um, picked up steam, in the 19-teens, 1920s. And fundamentalism was basically reacting to secular humanism, both outside the church and inside the church, that was kind of taking the focus away from the key doctrines or orthodox tenets of Christianity. So they were reacting against that to try and um, build up a bulwark and guard Christianity. Okay? Um, that part of it seems pretty innocuous and pretty well-motivated and, and maybe even a good idea. Here's the part, the move that, that was so destructive, I think, and took it towards a legalistic side. Um, the motivation was secular humanism is bad. It's, it's a bad worldview, bad paradigms, and it does a lot of damage. How is humanism coming to America and, and getting into culture because... Uh, ideas start here, then they trickle through the arts, and they get disseminated into culture. Do you see how that works? Okay, I, I could take a long time on that, but I won't. Um, so it comes with the ideas, humanism, then begins to go through the arts, and then it gets into the minds of people. So the people, the fundamentalists at that time, they recognize this. They said, where is humanism coming from? It's coming from the humanities departments of colleges. It's coming from the humanities in general, those subjects and those areas and skill sets. So humanism is coming from the humanities, so the humanities are the problem. Now, do you see the, the, the bad shift in thinking there? You don't kill the messenger, you, you go after the message. C.S. Lewis says, good philosophy uh, needs to exist for one simple reason, that bad philosophy exists and needs to be answered. What you should do is say, man, it's not the communication forms that's the problem. It's the ideas behind them. And if we're going to combat that, we have to take our ideas, which ought to be superior, refine that, and communicate it better. And we ought to have truth on our side. So this sense of, of confidence ought to be there. And so we would do it that way. But instead, we made this ridiculous kind of fallacious move, which... The, the, the humanities are the problem, and so we'll just get rid of them. And this is where it kind of ties into last week, because, you know, alcohol is a big part of that. So it's not um, that 
using alcohol in a bad way, wine in a bad way, is the real issue. It's that, that wine in and of itself is wrong, and so let's get rid of it. And that's kind of how the two go together, wine and art, because there was a Roman uh, poet of, in the time of Christ that said, no poet has ever created a poem from drinking water. And uh, so, so we know, I mean, there's kind of this correlation between the two. But Luther, Luther kind of showed the, the, the folly of this. Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, um, did, you know, and he was a scholar, and that's what's fascinating about a lot of these guys. They're just scholars, but he kind of put into an argument form what's called a reductio ad absurdum, which is you show something to the absurd level, and then you realize it doesn't make sense. And he was arguing against the people that had this kind of view of wine that you just have to throw it all out. And he said this. This is how he put his argument. Women are the downfall of many a great man. Alcohol is the downfall of many a great man. So we would have to kill all women and throw out all alcohol if we're going to protect men from falling. I mean, it's, it's a reductio ad absurd. It's absurd, right? You just can't apply that law all the way through. Yet, not only with wine, we did it with the arts. We just said, art is bad. The humanities departments are bad. Good Christians don't do that. So while the fundamentalists were reading the, the Bible and, and praising God through the Psalms and loving the scriptures and the Psalms, they wouldn't turn around and allow their son or their daughter to pursue poetry or songwriting. You see just the inconsistency there because art is bad, yet scripture is so good, but there's art in scripture. So we made this really interesting thing. Fundamentalism, uh, George Marsden, who's an evangelical scholar, is widely recognized as the the greatest historian on that whole movement of fundamentalism. He says, real simply, fundamentalism is this. It's defined one way. It's defined in the war metaphor. That, if you want to understand fundamentalism, it's the war metaphor. Good guys, bad guys, um, it's the war metaphor. So two things come from that. First is againstness. Againstness. And when you're against something, the second thing follows separateness. Are you tracking with me? So the dominant paradigm in, in coming through the 1900s and with some of these really conservative denominations, and I was a, a Baptist for a long time, but see absolutely no reason to slap that label on me. Jesus says, um, or Paul says, you know, we're, we're Christians. Don't take on other names. You know, it's not I'm a follower of Apollos or a follower of Paul or whatever. I'm not a Baptist. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Um, but since I was a Baptist, I can pick on them. Um, so if you were in a Baptist church, I had someone last week come up to me after the message and say, you know, I was from the Midwest, and, and I went to a Baptist church there, and we were a, mem we were a member of uh, the 5,000 Club, and I was just like, 5,000 Club? I've heard of the 700 Club. I've never heard of the 5,000 Club, because, yeah, 5,000 rules and counting. And, uh, and he's like, you have no idea how many families we saw get chewed up through that whole process. But so the dominant paradigm's coming through, and it's got this againstness, good guys, bad guys, and therefore we separate out from the things that the bad guys are doing, the arts and things like that, and, and there's this separation. If you don't believe me how ingrained that was and still is, um, here's just two quick little stories. I had a guy last week come up and tell me about his best friend that 30 years ago, in his senior year at Biola University, was expelled because he and uh, two other students were caught by the president outside of a, a movie theater. 
The other two guys ran. He didn't. He stood his ground. The president gave him a choice the next day. Turn the other two guys in, and I'll let you stay. Um, don't tell me who those other two are, and you're expelled. And go into the movies, right? When we were starting Antioch, I spoke at a Baptist church. <clears throat> I just said, you know, we don't know where Antioch's going, what it's doing. Here's a couple things we know. Truth, beauty, meaning, adventure. Um, I talked about the beauty and just how we value art. And I just talked about it for a little bit. Uh, pretty innocuous, value art, all this stuff. I get done, and this guy that knew me, he was um, in his late 60s, early 70s, and he'd known me for a year and a half, uh, liked me. We liked each other. And he comes up to me, very serious and very stern, and says to me, I think you owe us an explanation on your social views. And I was just lost. I'm like, what? What are you saying? I'm lost. I'm confused. He says, I think you owe us an explanation, the church here, an explanation on your social views. Because you're asking us to support you. And I'm like, I'm still lost. There's no context for what you're saying. I don't don't understand what you're asking to me here. And I I said this to him, and he goes, goes, well, you just said you guys are going to value art. And you need to tell us where you stand on homosexuality. I'm dead, I am dead serious. And I just, I, did, I took a step back and was like, are you, are you for real? Um, but that's the thinking. The arts are where everything bad is happening. The arts are bad. Christians should separate and be against that. It's fascinating because when you do that, everyone over there becomes... Um, a bad guy, and they all have a label. When you really separate out and, and you lose sight of the fact that the, that the line between good and evil runs right through the heart of every single man and woman, and you begin to draw a line in the sand, and bad is over there and good is over here, you self-justify, but you also condemn, and you slap labels. That one's a prostitute. That one um, does art, God forbid. That one goes to movies. Um, that one um, smokes, and I caught them. They were doing it behind the building. Um, I don't know what it is. Some things are bad, some things aren't, but everything becomes on that side of the line unless you're perfect. And since nobody's perfect, what began, began to happen in the Baptist churches? Man, you would like work so hard on lying about who you were and who your kids were. And you scrub and polish and dress yourself to present yourself to the world as perfect so that they understand you belong on the good side. And you suppress all that's really going on in your life or in your kid's life so that you can be a part of the, the perfect club. And in doing that, it helps if you make distinctions and point out how much better you are than those people on the other side of the line. And so the labels come. Does that make sense? So when I was studying philosophy, I did a whole semester on uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was the German philosopher in the late 1800s. He was the first one to proclaim God is dead. So that's kind of his famous thing. He's like, we're all acting as if God's still alive. Look, you killed him a long time ago. God is dead. And, and, and he started saying, how do we rebuild a system for finding meaning in a world where there is no God? And he, he was interesting in the history of philosophy because he was an artist in terms of his writing ability is absolutely amazing. And so his ideas right into art then impact culture. So during World War I, it was, it was kind of said that every single, well, they actually provided with it, but every one of the German soldiers in his knapsack had a copy of Thus Spoke 
Zarathustra, Nietzsche's book, where he talks about um, the Superman, the man that, that in some sense rises above all the other men and becomes something radically different. And so, you know, that's where, where the phrase Superman comes from. A better way would be saying overman. It's going gonna, it's gonna to, you know, transcend what man was and keep developing because of ingenuity and just creativity and just whatever. So the Germans kind of picked up on this. This drove a lot of it. Hitler and those guys totally used Nietzsche to kind of propagate a lot of their views. So here's this philosopher Nietzsche, and it was amazing. I was reading Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and he has this chapter called On Tarantulas. And the tarantulas were Christians. And I read that chapter, and I, I didn't find a single thing that I didn't agree with that Nietzsche wrote. I didn't agree with the overall conclusion. And what Nietzsche said is, Christians, these tarantulas, these spiders, these venomous people, create another world where good gets honored, bad gets punished, so that they can um, condemn and judge and, and put their spite on anyone that's above them that they don't like or that they hate. It's this grand cosmic thing or game of Christians taking this divine and and trying to even the tables by saying, you might be over me, you might be better off than me, you might be all these other things. Yeah, but you're going to get yours. And I was reading this. I was like, you know, there's Johnny, there's Fred, you know, there's, I, I was like, I know this. We do this. I was like, we're just falling right into Nietzsche's trap here where, where he's able to talk about us in, in a way. Now get this, okay. Um, a way that I think maps on to how we live sometimes. There's the bad guys, the prostitute, the this, the that, and we label everything, right? On the other side of the line. But I'm good, they're bad. We live that way, and Nietzsche writes about it, and he, he hits it on the head. Now, now let's just pivot. How did Jesus say people would write about the Christians um, and that everyone would kind of nod in assent and go, yeah, yeah, and that's why they're true, and that's why they're his disciples. He, he said the thing that's going to be at the heart of it is your love. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a witness and a light that shines. And here we are over here with fundamentalism, acting like the Pharisee who labeled everything and kind of put it all out there. And it's amazing to me how we subtly did that by making one distinction after another distinction and trying to control everything. Um, it's sad. The guy that talked to me last week's right. I know many a person and many a family that's been chewed up by that kind of legalism. And I think you or, or someone in your family would probably testify to the same thing. The thing that kept me away from church and God the most was hypocrisy or judgment not that, all, not that there isn't any sin, okay? I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. It's that there was no connection point for, for you outsiders to come in and begin to be a part of the loving and grace-filled community of Jesus Christ. So I want to transition here. How did Jesus deal with this whole thing? How did he handle stuff? It's really fascinating because he lived in an era where people are getting crucified on the sides of the road. Injustices are happening all the time to his people, the Jews of that day by the Romans. So Jesus comes along, and he's supposed to be the new David, 
So everyone's like, sweet, finally the new David's here. He's going to come, and he's going to like redistribute the balance of power so that we can have a theocracy again, and we can dictate the terms, whether you're Republican or Democrat. I mean, that's how we think, right? My party's going to now be the one that's elevated and put in control, and then we're going to redictate all the terms and use the majority status to like now change it, and the minority's going to be on the outs. And all these people are excited. Jesus even had a zealot as one of his disciples, a guy that had kind of come along for years, and his whole life was dedicated as a zealot to overthrowing the Romans. And they're like, here's the Messiah. He's going to liberate us and be our king. And they're just jacked about this. So you're going to do something about culture that's not the way it ought to be, like a theocracy where God like is over the whole thing. Now here's the fascinating thing. Jesus didn't do a thing. He worked miracles, right? He could have walked by the side of the road and every one of those guys hanging on the cross just snapped the fingers. He could have walked by and like, you know, given leprosy to that Roman guy or, you know, I mean, he could have done anything. I got like humorous things in my head that Jesus could have done to embarrass like public officials and begin to drive out the Romans and he could have taken a guy that had character and snapped his fingers and slowly opened doors so that guy of character could have become like a public official and a politician in that area that would have changed everything. And Jesus didn't do any of that. Why didn't he do any of that? See, because here's what happens with that. Um, You can never fully arrive at your vision of the just community utopia, what a theocracy would look like. You can never all the way get there. Why? Because every single person that is born and inhabits this planet has a fundamental flaw. And we're all sinners. We will all make mistakes. And some people will flat out pursue their own agenda despite everyone else. So no matter what you tinker or your political party tinkers or the political movements you make, you will never be able to get all the way there because sin exists. Okay? It's a tar baby. The analogy of a tar baby is it's, it's this tar thing and, you know, I think it was a rabbit. Or I don't know. I didn't go back and study the tar baby analogy this week. But, you know, you put a fist in it and your fist sticks. So you got to get that fist out, so you put another fist in it, and that sticks. And then you get really angry, and you, you kick it, and now you got a, a foot stuck in it. And you just all worked up into a frenzy now, and your other foot goes in, and you just, the, more, the further you go, the further you get sucked in. And the more we try to control culture, the more we find that there is to control, and the harder we fight to control it, and all of our focus and attention begins to get sucked into this, we have to manipulate and control culture type of vibe. And the more we get into that, the more there's people that are standing in our way. They're the bad guys, and we're the good guys. And the more we leverage all our energy to win and beat the bad guys, because we're the good guys, to get what we want in culture, and then we find out if we even get close, that guess what? The person we put in power is a sinner and is going to fail. Or, you know, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Well, we just have to what? I don't know, something else. And it just continues and continues and continues. And we get so obsessed with this that we become the Pharisee. We become legalistic. and We become obsessed with winning. We become filled with all this kind of man-centered 
like I've got to do it, we've got to do it obsession. And our heart is completely missing the gospel at that point. Our heart is completely missing the gospel. So <clears throat> the vibe was to try and change culture. We can never get there because in this gap is something called sin. What did Jesus do? Jesus says, I'm going to go at the real problem. I'm going to go at sin. I came here to set you free from sin. That you don't have to be bound by that anymore. That you can serve others and die to yourself and really love. And so I'm going to set you free because that's the real issue is the sin in the heart, this, this line. And I'm going to make your heart of stone, a heart of flesh. And I'm going to do that. So here's the thing. We're like these jailed birds. And if you let a bird that's in a cage out, where do you think it's going to fly? It's going to fly towards home. It's going to fly towards freedom. And so Jesus is coming and saying, this is what I'm trying to create. I'm going to set you free. And if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And all of a sudden, church leaders in this movement called fundamentalism says, let's take all the free birds and let's put them back over here where they can be our little warriors obsessed with the bad guys and trying to make everybody follow the laws and to be perfect, even though they know deep down in their minds that their own family can't even live up to those standards. And there's nothing that bothers me more than legalism. There's nothing that bothers me more than that. And so we come back to art. And I look at it and say, man, uh, the church was always uh, appreciative of uh, uh, patrons of utilizing art forms and good scholarship and good writing and, and uh, all these things and music all the way through church history. Some of the most amazing classical music was Christian artists that were first trying to, to figure out how God created the universe and then creating art forms, music structures that followed those patterns and classics. So what happened? And the, the beauty of being a church planter um, is you get to kind of step outside of that progression of church history and say, you know what, we've gotten off track in certain areas. How do we go back to New Testament Christianity and, and just be authentic? Instead of being caught up in the stream and the flow, you know, can't we just step out and just go, you know what, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff we've accrued. Hit the refresh button and, and just go back to trying to be authentic again and pick it up here and walk forward. I love that part about being a church planter. Because here's the thing. Um, there's something really weird going on with this beauty deal. We were talking about this in the car this week. A couple of us were over in the valley. Beauty is something that helps you. Um, you guys are really in for it. We have 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> I love time. Um, all right, let's back up. What, the, what happened is, okay, so just, we're backing up, so there's a disconnect here, it's okay. Um, what had happened prior to the Reformation is you've got, in the late Middle Ages, a whole, a whole flow of history where the Latin language had kind of, you have the, the, the nation states kind of cropping up. I, let's go even further back, this is really fascinating stuff. So you had kind of one empire in, in Europe, okay, in Latin's kind of language. What begins to change that, you got these little feudal things, you got like the landlord, he's got like his couple of knights to protect it and, and all this other stuff. 
And what happens is with the Crusades, all the knights kind of get pulled together and sent to crusade. So what do you think all these little kind of, you know, feudal lords begin to do? They don't really have their knights to protect them, so they begin making alliances with the other feudal lords kind of around them. It's fascinating. It's, it's when the, the Europe as we know it now, these kind of different people groups and nations kind of began to emerge with their own little culture as, you know, we send off all the knights kind of to uh, fight the crusades. And then even there, those knights come back and they no longer want to serve just one kind of feudal lord once you've like traveled the world kind of thing. And so you see, you know, Europe beginning to change at that point. But what happens because of it is Latin goes by the wayside. And so you have Latin is the only language the Bible's in. You have priests coming up on the Reformation, late 1400s and early 1500s, that don't even know how to read Scripture. When you don't know how to look at the, the rule book or the authority or the, the text or whatever, you begin making stuff up, and there's widespread corruption. It became a power thing. There was a writer in the time of the Reformation in England that said, in our, in our village, no woman knows who the father of, of her child is because of the abuses of the confession system. I mean, horrendous stuff is going on because nobody really knows what the heck's going on and it's highly politicized and all this other stuff. And the regular Joe is at the mercy of it because he doesn't know that this doesn't jive with what Scripture says because he can't read Latin. You get, you get that? And what the church did is it began to reflect the Old Testament system where the priests were the mediators between God and man. So what you do over here is sacred. The word comes about in 1290. Um, are secular. What you do is secular, and it's like the, the Greek word aeon, which means of this age. Okay, The things you're doing are of this age. They're, the time frame is right here, has a sense of time. This is the time frame, and it has really nothing to do with God, nothing to do with eternity. It's not spiritual. The spiritual stuff is sacred. That goes on in um, the cathedrals with the Eucharist, with Mass, with confession, with the things that the, the priests do that have to do with the timeless and eternal things. Your stuff is just mundane and secular. The things the priests do are sacred and they have to do with God. And so God was distant from people and the things they did in their life had no connection point. And when the reformers came, one of the first things they started doing was was translating the scriptures into the, the common language for the people again. And they began to teach him, look, the priesthood of believers, we're all priests in, in the sense that we can all serve God. And God gives different gifts to everybody, like Ben was talking. And those gifts were given to you for what purpose? To bring glory to God. And so whether you're a blacksmith, whether you're a cook, whether you're a servant, Whatever you are, you do that the best that you can do it, and that's how you worship or how you glorify, how you honor God. There is nothing that's, that's a waste. There's nothing secular. It's all sacred. It's sacred in virtue of your intentionality, and I'm going to be the best blacksmith I can be. It's going to be timeless. It's going to be to your glory, God. It's an act of worship, and it's sacred. The title of this message is Sacred Art. And so what happens here is there's this big kind of separation between secular and sacred, and the reformers kind of bring that back. Does that make sense? Now here's what the fundamentalists did. They, they, they undid that again. Because now there's things, the humanities, that we're going to push over there. And they even did it with the sciences. 
because the sciences are atheistic and they're bringing in evolution and, and we push those off. And so what begins to happen is you have a bunch of irrelevant Christians that, that are very unintellectual um, in a lot of fields that really matter because we don't see any value in them. We don't see that you can get into the sciences and honor God that way or get into Hollywood and be a, a video producer and try to honor God that way. Or get into whatever it may be, teaching in a secular university, but doing it, trying to honor God by being a light in a dark place. So we, we backed everybody off against separate, and, and all of these fields become secular again. There's nothing of eternal spiritual importance in those fields, only like in being a missionary or, or working at a church. So if I asked you, half of you in this room would say, in my Christian life, I've felt guilty because I'm not working in Africa as a missionary, and I, I'm not a pastor in a church. Why do you feel guilty? Because those are the only things of sacred value that have to do with the things of God and the gospel. And everything else is kind of a waste of time, and you're a second-class citizen. Do you, are you resonating with that? Okay, that's the culture you've grown up in. And so here's what it's produced. Now we're back where we were. Here's what it's produced. God created beauty. When you look at a sunset, it's sacred. Whatever you're doing mundane um, that has to do with right here and now, you see the most amazing sunset and you stop, and it's a sacred moment. It becomes timeless and eternal. When you hear just music that just makes you stop and close your eyes, it is sacred, and the mundane things of this life kind of, kind of go away, and you're transformed into this place because of beauty. Now, God built that into us, so whether you're a Christian or not, that's just true. It's true. So the non-Christian works with you or in your family, whoever, they know that beauty plays a, a, an, an incredible part of, of life. It's, it's just a, it's a must like life without that kind of beauty where, that transcends what's going on here. Um, Book of Ecclesiastes says you've put eternity in the hearts of man. And, and if we don't have beauty around us that helps us transcend this, you know, even the non-Christian realizes that wouldn't be a life worth living. So here's what happens. You've got the non-Christian that appreciates and understands beauty. And he walks up to his Christian friend and, and tries to talk to him about classical music or good wine. And the Christian friend has no clue about classical music because it wasn't important. And doesn't know anything about wine because wine's evil. And doesn't really get the whole idea that beauty is something that's, that God created that's valuable. And so here you've got a non-Christian knowing that beauty is important, talking to a Christian that, that's just so deformed that way. And he's like, if I were to become like you, I'd have to give up all of these parts of me, which I deep down kind of know are important. Do, do you see the tension? We've created this situation where we, we are the thing that people can't become because of how God made them. Isn't that odd? It's, it's just really odd. The Christians were always the ones that could talk about classical music and these kinds of things. And the appreciation of beauty was so rich and deep. And then they would add on to it. And you know why beauty matters? Because of the way God created us. 
Do you know how you can tell beauty? Um, because of intentionality and creativity, because of the flow of communication and the art form, because of all of these different tests, if we were to, to give a whole message on uh, aesthetics and beauty and how to appreciate it. We, we know these things and we can talk about it because we understand that there's a creator God. And people are like, wow, that's real. That's authentic. Tell me more. And they get pulled up into this thing called Christianity. And that's where Jesus was. You see, when he was called a friend of sinners, it was because Jesus, when he walked up to people, walked up to a person. Sally, Bob, George. Whether they were a prostitute, a righteous, God-fearing Jew, a Roman soldier, whatever it was, he walked up to a person that was living life and going through some unique things. And he's like, I care about you getting it. So how do I love on you to help nurture you, to, to feed you, so that you'll begin to realize that God's laws are for a reason. They, they, they make life better, and they bring you to, together with God more. And sin and disobedience, it's, it's horrible because it leads to a worse life and, and a, a destruction of your relationship with God. Let me nurture you and feed you and show you how this is the right way, the path of life. And we walk up on people, and that gap is always there. Prostitute. Artist. <laughs> Movie watcher. Wine drinker. And they know that, that there's no connection point with us. We always know when there's that sense of separation and againstness. No matter what our smile tells them, they get the vibe that, that we don't connect with them and we don't appreciate who God made them. We don't really care. There's no love there. And so it's time, like this church, it's a church plan. We can start over. We've got to build in ourselves the ability to see people as people and not as a label. We've got to be willing to go past the little divide and say, you know what? Things aren't evil in and of themselves. This person just was never taught. They had a bad family. They don't know wisdom. They don't know how to use things the right way. They need help, not judgment. And we just go up to that person and we love on them and it takes years and we build this friendship and they begin to change. Why? Because we care. So um, just pulling that thing full circle. I think the question you would ask me or, or, or people would ask me, okay, would be this. Well, why, that's great and all, art, art has value to it, but why should we care as a church about art? Why should we put our time and energy into pursuing that? Why should we go after it? And, and do you see how in that question itself we're showing that we don't really get it? That's what I mean by that. We think arts are something over here that really have nothing to do with church. And so, okay, arts is valuable. Can I get it? But why should we expend the energy to go and loop around on, on this sidetrack to bring that value into the middle? I mean, are you tracking with me? And it shows that we don't really get it. Like what Ben was saying, all the gifts, all the talents, 
all the parts of God's created order are a, a organic, natural part of the body. There are people in here that have artwork out there. That is who God made them to be. We don't have to just sidetrack at all. We just have to be who God made us to be. There's no energy or waste of time getting away from the things that God really wants from us. It's a part of what God wants from us. It's how he created us. And it doesn't matter whether you serve or whether you work with kids, or whether you do food, whether you stand up front here. All of those things that God did are natural, organic things that we need to value and live out. And when we do that, it's effortless. It's not some kind of like, oh, okay, we'll just go through the gymnastics to pretend like we care about something that obviously doesn't have any real value. It, it runs deep, this paradigm we were given. And there is no divide between the secular and the sacred. And all we do, we do to the glory of God because we want to glorify God. And I want Ben Edwards to glorify God through his photography, not to come out behind that camera and do something that he has no business doing because it's not the way God made him. It's not about expending energy. It's about being real and understanding things from God's perspective. Please hear me on that. We've got to be different than what I've seen in Christianity growing up if we're really going to be the light that God called us to be. We've got to be different if we're going to harmonize with what it says in Scripture about us and about our God and about how we're supposed to connect with other people. We've got to be authentic if we're going to be real. We've got to be authentic if we're going to be Christians. We've got to be authentic if we're going to understand this relationship that we have with God. Let's